old Midwesterners log there. Yeah, I'm just so happy to be here and really enjoying my time. Uh, I'm, I'm here on, on, on the bridge and I look around and I got a Klingon and I got a, I got a Data. And uh, I'm only here for a little while, so uh, I guess I, I get back on my little time machine and get back home, okay? All right. <laughs> it's nice talking to everybody. All right, bye. <laughs> Welcome to Reengage, ladies and gentlemen, where four Gen X Star Trek fans gather to talk about our perfectly favorite Canadian genre master, Matt Brewer, and his guest starring turn on a matter of time. Uh, the, what, fifth episode of the fifth season of Star Trek The Next Generation? as we all gather here to discuss it. I am joined by my fellow bridge officers. I guess it's the ninth episode, Jimmy says. Using all his fingers, I pay very little attention to numbers, things like that. Here I am in Thailand. Good morning, fellow bridge officers. How are you doing? Let's start with Kate Yeager. I do good. It's good to see your shining face. Well, thank you. It's good to see yours. It, it's uh, pushing midnight here. Thank you all for gathering so early on your end to make sure that we could all be awake at the same time. What do you think, Jimmy? What did you have for breakfast this morning? I have not eaten yet because uh, time crept up on me and I realized I didn't have time uh, to scarf down some eggs. And that's how I lost oh. one of my 10 digits. <laughs> All right. Nine-fingered Jimmy. We call him one finger less than, uh, I don't know, 10. We don't call him that. <laughs> it's a really bad uh, nickname that I started with. It is midnight, people. It is midnight. <laughs> it is midnight here. Thank you. Greg Tito, welcome to the podcast again. How are you, sir? I'm doing good. I do you guys remember the Return of the King animated thing from Rankin Bass? Yes. It's not as well yeah. known as The Hobbit. Starring Orson Bean. But there's a song about Frodo of the Nine Fingers, and so that's we're just gonna call Jimmy that from now on. Jimmy of the Nine Fingers. <laughs> we gonna call him Frodo of the Nine Fingers or Jimmy? Dealer's choice. However you wanna go. You're the host. I'm in. Uh, I never mention myself when I'm hosting, so I will introduce myself this time. I am Eric Curry. Here we are talking about a matter of time. Jimmy tells me that this is the ninth episode of the fifth season of Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, Greg Tito, what was going on in the rest of the world while we were watching this? Uh, it was November 18th, 1991. And three days before this, the stock market crashed for 192 points or something. It was like 120 points. And it was the fifth largest one day drop in points in the Dow average, uh, it was a market uh, that was talked about a lot about the recession under Bush and, and how that was a you know inciting incident for Clinton being able to come in and, and win the election in 92. Uh, they thought maybe the economy was recovering, but apparently, uh, you know, corporations are going to corporate. And uh, I read the like Washington Post article about this event, and it is just very telling how the gobbledygook language of the stock market experts has not changed uh, in 30 years and probably will never change again because it really is uh, smoke and mirrors, that stock market. Um, so that <laughs> came to mind. Uh, also, the day this aired, uh, Yugoslavia is in the process of breaking up uh, between the Serbs and uh, the Croatians. The battle of a town called Vukovar happened. It was the end of an 87-day battle of uh, siege and uh, a lot of terrible things happened during this battle um, and is one of the ones that we remember from um, the fallout from this conflict between the Serbs and the Croats um, and many of the leaders involved with the army, the Yugoslavian People's Army, uh, were indicted on war crimes because of the uh, events of this day uh, and going into the city, finally taking it over. And basically uh, the, 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 the town is no more uh, after it, including many of the people within it. Uh, 260 Croatian prisoners were uh, killed, massacred, and it is a terrible thing. Um, and it had many uh, uh, ramifications of the dissolution of the Soviet Union here. And the only reason I really go into detail about this is because Marshal Tito, uh, the communist leader of Yugoslavia, uh, I read up a little bit on him. He's my, I wouldn't want to say my namesake, but he has the same nickname that is my actual last name. Um, he uh, was one of the reasons why Yugoslavia even existed. Uh, he basically combined these two peoples into a group called, you know, Yugoslavia. Uh, and when he passed away in 1980, it just started a 
a, a cavalcade of dominoes falling uh, that led to uh, this terrible uh, incident here in 1991. Uh, so he was one of the good communist leaders, uh, if it could be said, uh, and it actually tried to create a communist instead of a authoritarian totalitarian state uh, that many communist states devolve into. He actually was doing uh, the work of, of creating communes and making uh, it for the people being led by the people. Uh, but unfortunately, when he passed away, everything went to shit. All right. All right. What you going to do? Balance <laughs> that. Balance <laughs> that, Greg Tito. What comes I, next? Well, uh, well, you go to sports, right? Everything is, is great about sports. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, uh, the Orioles shortstop legend Cal Ripken won his second MVP for the American League. Uh, Well-deserved. Uh, and uh, he was soon going to retire after this. But uh, that was at least, you know, one nice thing that happened amongst uh, baseball fans in the Baltimore area. And I'll end that on that wonderful happy note. Hey, I like it. My nephew Ripken is the uh, one of many namesakes of, of the younger Cal, as mentioned by Greg just now. So that's wonderful. Oh, we celebrate you, young Ripken. His, his first name is Ripken? Correct. Yes. That's amazing. I yes, love that. Yes, he is a stellar young man. Uh, I don't know. He's like 29 or something now. Uh, <laughs> no, I believe he is 22 years old. Uh, living the dream. All right. We Thanks, go Ripken. next to Kate Yeager. As Greg was telling us everything that we do or do not need to know about what was happening in the world, uh, what was happening in our radios and television boxes. Well, on our radios, we have one final week of Cream by Prince and the New Power Generation. Because you want to throw away Cream after it's been around two, two weeks or so, because uh, otherwise it gets a little, uh, you know, rancid. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> The movie, number one, was Cape Fear, that uh, fantastic remake. Uh, Counselor! (laughs) On television, I had not remembered this. Shining Time Station, which was on PBS, which had Ringo Starr as Mr. Conductor. I remembered Ringo Starr as Mr. Conductor. Well, this day, George Carlin took over for Ringo Starr as Mr. Conductor. I had forgotten that that was one of the final things that he did was uh, host a children's television program on PBS. And I just find that so satisfying. I love it. He actually referenced it in one of his later stand-ups where he's like talking about it. He's like, kids are fucking stupid. And you're talking to the conductor here. <laughs> love it. And uh, I'll end on a bit of a bummer note too, because I don't want Greg to have Yay. all the glory. Aww, thanks, uh, we had Kate. two devs uh, of note. Uh, Kiss drummer Eric Carr passed away. Sort of Kiss drummer. As did que- Queen lead singer Freddie Mercury. Uh, so this is when we lost Freddie Mercury this due week. to AIDS, um, right? It was like an AIDS-related. It was, yeah. Pneumonia, Ugh. and and uh, I think brought that to the forefront for a lot of people. Um, hopefully, in a positive way, in terms of um, getting information out. And I mean, there was a lot of ugliness that happened about that, but um, you know, I think it was one of the first. Um, incidences i mean we, we've got uh, magic johnson we've got freddie mercury like these sort of high profile folks dying of or or living with this disease um rock hudson was probably one of the earlier ones yeah absolutely right so i'll end it that was pop culture we'll end it on a down on do 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 well jimmy out of these tears, I expect you to rise up and tell us what we're dealing with with a matter of time. Yes, not too much. We do learn a couple of historical facts about Star Trek in this episode. We learn that phasers, medical force fields, and the warp coil were not invented until after the 22nd century. Uh, and then a little bit of non-canical fodder. There were two books, one book, one short story written about this character we're about to uh, be introduced to. Uh, one of them awesome. confirms that indeed he was uh, sent to prison, but he only served one year. Uh, and he does turn up on DS9 uh, just about a year later where he enters into Quark's poker game. And then this funny little uh, short story called Research has um, him coming across 
the blueprints for the same uh, time capsule. He goes back in time, and with the help of one of his ancestors, he contacts Gene Roddenberry and fills him in on all what happens in the future, and that is Roddenberry's inspiration for Star Trek. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, meta. That's a Mr. Mixelplick fucking moment. And that's yeah. all there is from the Nimbusic Files. All right. Well, then let's get right to the episode itself. I I think we'll talk at length about Mr. Matt Frewer, who is our guest star of note. Uh, I'm going to keep it uh, to him. I will certainly talk at length about him. But if anybody else wants to talk about your introduction to Mr. Matt Frewer, I'm sure we all first saw him as Max Headroom, uh, one of the gods of early computer animation and certainly something that would uh, qualify him as a genre god, as we will discuss moving forward. Y'all remember Max Headroom vividly? Oh, yeah. Vividly. Yeah. I would try to do some research to find out when he came on, because I, I have a recollection of that being a lineup on ABC of shows sure. that I really, well, like, it was, like, one after the other. Um, and then I was allowed to stay up a little later so I could watch that. MTV, he started in 85 uh, after a British uh, kind of thing. There was the movie... TV movie was 85 and the series was 87 to 89, if I remember mm. right. Uh, and in between, he did videos and he did some uh, some pitch work. And then later on was, of course, the face of the dynamic new Coke line that was as successful as anything we can we can remember. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, Max Headroom was huge and uh, he parlayed that into genre success in just about any Kind of situation you'd like to name, including starting a long collaboration with Stephen King as the Trash Can Man in uh, the Stand TV uh, mm. event in the mid '90s. You got to think of uh, Lawnmower Man Two. I think uh, is there's no way around that. Myself, I think of him as uh, I also think it's probably his most famous role, no matter what people are saying. But as as the neighbor. In uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, I think is the, the first thing that comes comes to mind to people probably just a little younger than us and, and Jimmy's kids. And from there, uh, I want to recommend everybody go check out a, a fantastic Dabney Coleman joint called Short Time, where he plays uh, a cop who is a week away from retirement but has to die on duty so that his wife and family will get the insurance money coming to them. And his, uh, his uh, no-nonsense goofball partner is one Matt Furrer and uh, that's the one I remember as a kid really being uh, uh, spoken to as my dad took me to see that anyway there's everything we could possibly talk about um, the guy has been around forever uh, Eureka he was a, a cast member in more recent stuff with Orphan Black uh, he is working constantly now I once met him at LaGuardia while we were both in line uh, for flights at five in the morning and he was on Air Canada, and I was, I think, on Frontier Airlines at that point. Maybe it was Midwest Air. Um, but we were both too polite to say anything to each other. We're the only two people in line for about two hours before <laughs> anybody showed up uh, to take our bags and get everything done. So we just kind of awkwardly once in a while made that look at each other where he was very clear that I knew who he was and uh, that he didn't really want to talk about it. So uh, we, we had that. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, lovely tension back and forth until I told him as I was walking by, I'm like, you're really admiring your work. And then kept going. But in this particular episode, it's, it's one of the performances that I really, really, really remember uh, as much as I remember any guest star uh, in Star Trek history. And let's jump right into the episode itself because we are on our way post haste to Penthara 4 where a type C asteroid done fucked up and non-populated continent and it's not unlike the nuclear winters of earth in the 20th and 21st century oh my god just hit us with the mistakes of our children or of our parents and grandparents and now our children thank you writers uh much appreciated mm -hmm. so suddenly there's a distortion uh on the way and picard would like to know whether an hour's delay will make much of a difference as they go to penthara 4 to try and help them through their asteroid fucked upness Jordy says, not unless there's another asteroid, which seems pretty sassy to me. Uh, and then Data comes forward with, well, that's highly unlikely that there would be another asteroid. Uh, proving once again that sarcasm is not his thing. 
<laughs> so they go to see what the new object is. They hail it. The response is uh, move over. And Picard says, uh, I'm afraid the Enterprise moves for no man. And then Eowyn says, I am no man. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Factual. <laughs> and Worf's like, no, no. I mean, you, Captain, you need to move over. And of course, straight man that he is, he moves towards Worf thereby moving himself out of the way. And the great Matt Frewer from the late 20th sixth century Earth has shown up. He is from 300 years in the future, and he has come to be a fly on the wall and witness history. Um, so what do you think? How's this as a uh, an icebreaker for everybody? What are your thoughts on this first scene? What you got, Jimmy? Uh, I thought it was great. Aside from the fact that I generally have a distaste for time travel plots, it's... Still very, you know, tropey for sci-fi, so you have to sort of roll with it when you love sci-fi. Well, Jimmy, we're going to give you some new phaser functions later, so you're going to be able to function all right with time travel in the meantime. Just, I had not remembered a lot of this episode. I think season 1991 was a year that I moved. Ooh. And so I think that, uh, and it was right around this time, so these last few episodes have been n- newer to me. So um, I... Yeah sort of wrote out this whole episode being like, hmm, I'm excited and I have some thoughts, but unsure whether those <laughs> thoughts were right or not. But this is such a wonderful entrance. It it reminds me of sort of just the spectacle of it, right? Like you've got a, a in, impenetrable hole that they can't get their sensors through and yet somebody is sending a message out. Like that's intriguing from the start to me. Um, because that indicates a, a, a level of, um, you know, engineering that we haven't seen yet. And then just right. the cheekiness of move over is just wonderful. And then to have it be Matt Frewer is like the bonnet on top of the cake. It's beautiful. And don't put bonnets on top of cakes, by the way. It ruins both of them. <laughs> <laughs> what would you think, Craig? Funnily enough, that's a little bit what I thought of this, Kate, as like this weird fish out of water scene almost immediately. Like Matt Frewer's performance here is so not like the sci- the brand of sci-fi that Star Trek is to me, right? Like he is, comes from that Buckaroo Banzai, Max Headroom kind of like more, uh, I don't know, 80s cartoony sci-fi. And so when he shows up immediately, it's it's off-putting almost as much as, you know, Picard and the rest of the cast is like, huh, you feel like you're jumping genres, even though it is still sci-fi. It felt immediately out of place. And I love that about his his energy. Like he just comes in, he's like, good to meet you. Blah, 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 blah. And you're like, oh, and you know, you just understand right away that he is an outsider and he uses that to his advantage really well. It's such a great con man kind of ability. Uh, that he has to put people on their back heels. And it's it's wonderful to see. Yeah, I feel kind of right from the intro that all that's missing is a sonic screwdriver and you've got a nice bridge between Tom Baker and Chris Eccleston. Like <laughs> totally. uh, this, this character, the 90s is kind of notably absent except for that uh, one uh, thing that had Lupin and Eric Roberts, right? <laughs> in, in the Doctor Who verse in this decade. And this, this character fits nicely kind of into that mythos for me. Fun entrance of having the TARDIS suddenly in one of the shuttle bays, so I'm <laughs> I'm kind of for it, yeah. uh, just like all of you. Um, so we 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 head to the ready room. We find that Matt Furrer's character is a professor studying early interstellar history, and uh, don't you move this book in its case to your desk on my account just because that's where his uh, where uh, your descendants think it is. Picard, of course, is flabbergasted that the layout of his ready room would be of any interest to anybody and he comes back with that legendary picard modesty my favorite moment of course is when he sees the painting on the wall and says this is the original (laughs) i just think kind of all the goofiness throughout this is is truly wonderful and the the back and forth is great that was my first clue to me that this guy was bullshit uh-huh. other than his demeanor um but i was like oh, i was trying to remember this episode like you kate i was like i know this there's a story here but i forget what his his shtick is um but when he points to the painting and says this is original i immediately thought oh it's a, a picture of the original enterprise the you know ncc 1701 but it's right. not as we know it's the d and i know and, and and he shows that he doesn't have context of what original 
might mean in this case. Um, oh, I thought he was oh, saying it's the he original means the painting. painting. Oh, no, I do, I do too. But I don't think as the audience, I that's where I went. Where it's like, oh, that's not the original. Oh, it's 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 something different. Also, he says something in the in the opening scene where he doesn't refer to the Enterprise by name. He does it by the call sign, and it's because on his ship he could see the call sign written on the hull. It's he's very good at getting what little information he has available to him and using that to his advantage. Also, I just want to note we haven't said it out loud yet and I have to. Berlinghoff Rasmussen is one of the greatest sci-fi names ever created by humans. Professor Berlinghoff Professor. Rasmussen. Very very good. But yeah, no, that this this whole scene in hindsight now knowing the story, you, you can really really pick apart what he's doing in this scene, this ready room scene in particular yes. because he's not giving any information, but he's absorbing everything that Picard is telling him and trying to, you know, file it away for use later on. Yes, it's the classic con man move that we'll see throughout the entire episode where he is asked a, a direct question and gives a direct non-response. <laughs> um, it, it happens pretty consistently and it, it's done with such kind of joy. Like later on, you see kind of the apotheosis of it with uh, the scene between him and, and uh, Dr. Crusher. Yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, Worf and Riker at 10 forward, which we get to pretty soon. Uh, but, but for right now, yes, it's, it's, it's it ringing a lot of alarm bells. Picard is still very confused uh, that he would be the one who would be studied. And I was struck that Kirk would never take it to this line of questioning he would not question well there's other people on the enterprise you should study no kirk would would absolutely accept that they're here to study him he would just, he would just wonder what what the uh, you know what the moment was clear my uh, schedule Fruer, of course yes <laughs> do you need to take any Picard pictures caesar and lincoln <laughs> how i need four shirts <laughs> At the end of this scene, he counts out seven meters from one end of the ready room to another, but not at the widest end of the ready room, just like some random wall. Uh, and I was right. Fantastic. Do you think that was written in or did did Matt just like, hey, I got something I think will help? <laughs> I have got to think that throughout this episode, there are little moments that he threw in. Like a couple of those moments to... to Crewman just passing by and he's like, you'll remember someday. I'm like, uh, it's just too perfect for him for me to believe that it was all in the script. I, I'm, I'm biased that way towards the actor. But yeah, so much of his performance seems so off the cuff that it, it feels improvised, even if it's not. We immediately go to the bridge where Worf says, why now? And he's it's taken up with Jordy. Like, what, what makes sense? Why are you here now? What are you studying now? And Fruer immediately distracts with Worf. Why, have you always sat there? <laughs> <laughs> like, which is great. And it gets Jordy and Worf on their back feet immediately, and they shut up. And uh, it goes right to Riker, who asks something similar, and he goes right to the, oh, well, that's a nice try, Riker, to do it that way. Crusher tries, asking about uh, whether the Cerulean Plague, or whichever plague it was that she was talking about, has been cured yet. And when Picard shuts her down, she's like, oh, come on, it can't even be a problem that I would know that or not but all of their questions are batted down and honestly everybody's pretty blasé as far as I'm concerned about the fact of a time traveler in front of them I know they've all done it a little bit but wouldn't you all be asking different questions or are these the the, the questions you would be asking too <laughs> I think it's obvious that Crusher is a hundred percent in, right? Like from the beginning, yes. like she's enamored, she's in, and that's the kind of question that I, I would think a scientist, like if this is one of those plagues that has been, you know, hundreds of years, that may right. be the first question, especially if you're like, oh my God, I have access to that knowledge. I think the rest of them, I'm with you. Like it's very sort of like. Well, what about stuff and things? <laughs> yeah. Will I marry it's, Troy? It's either you're gonna have some. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I thought the the gravity of the situation was never addressed, even in the big argument at the end. And I think that must have been a directorial choice because one, this crew right. has been through time; they've already been faced yes. with the ethical and temporal dilemma of do we. Um, let people know. And they have looked at people that they know are going to die if they don't make choices. 
and they made different choices. So they all have been in this situation. So it's one of those things that Star Trek falls into where episodes can be in a vacuum, even though they do link some things from one to the other. So in this episode, it's as if none of them have ever gone back in time. And so they're the sophomores who are like, ooh, there's a time traveler. Let me ask who's going to win the World <laughs> Series. And they've already <laughs> been at that point and know that we can't do that. We know, at right. least in this world, which is stupid anyways, that you can affect time in that way. Like, right. if he comes back, then that's, yeah, that's part of time. <laughs> like, if he tells you what happened, then that was always what did happen. Like, it's, it's ridiculous. So Beverly's the only one who seems to, like, be taking the situation as what it is. And everyone else is just annoyed. Very annoyed. Well, to an extent, Picard has, has fully bought in as well as he is the one who's helping Matt down all these uh, different right. questions. But he had yeah. his own issues. This is my only real complaint about the plot of this episode is this scene because Picard basically just steams roll, rolls over everybody and is like, well, he's credentialed. You know, he's a professor. It seems yep. all in the up and up. <laughs> and we believe him 100%. So help him out. Do whatever you can. And I'm like, you know, they, they at least in this scene do mention, like, maybe he's a charlatan. Maybe he's, he's made up. But the thing that I keep thinking about is he says he's credentialed. And you're like, how, what credentials are you looking at? Like, did you call the oh, you know. university he works at from 200 years ago and be like, did you have a Berlinghoff Rasmussen on staff 200 years? Like, there's no way he could be credentialed. <laughs> it just seems to be like a way to move the plot forward. So that's my only. A, a time spaceship, right? I mean, that's a pretty big right. credential. Right. Well, that as Greg, well as the, Greg, the temporal anomaly. Berlinghoff Rasmussen. Uh, well, and, I am going to change my name. Acceptance he's gained within his peers. Um, <laughs> I want to say that three of us think that you are credentialed uh, oh, well thanks. beyond the dreams of, of man, honestly. I, I think you your, your professional jealousy here is misplaced. Well, I am from the future. Yes. Uh, moving forward, uh, Kate uh, made sure that I know that I'm, I'm taking some time here. She looked at her little finger ring. Uh, and, and <laughs> opened it, which is one of my favorite Trek props uh, as well. It is a good one. <laughs> Crusher's like, well, yeah, he's from the future. Can I bone him? What I love is that uh, she and she and Deanna are immediately talking here as Data escorts him to new quarters. Deanna's like, he's holding something back. And Crusher's like, well, yeah, he's from the future. Of course he's holding something back. And then she says, it might be that. Then she shrugs and then she goes, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just like, it could not you be ever? Lord, Lord Counselor Troy. Do you ever know? <laughs> they do talk, well, he is human, and there was a temporal distortion. And then Jordy says, it is plasticized tritanium mesh that the ship is made from. So then we're all like, okay, let's do the questionnaires. As he takes uh, the trip with Data to his room, he says he's very excited to meet the Model T of androids. And Data's like, no, I'm totally a Model A. And he says, I stand corrected. So he's even playing data very fast and loose and quickly. He's just like, yeah, whatever you say, I'll, I'll find some way to use you. We get into the room. He says, it'll have to do. I'll let you know what else I need. I just have to point out the best prop ever, which is he takes a <laughs> hand towel and it's literally like an old school blue hand towel that has been sewed with shiny fabric on the outside. And yep. I'm like, yep. what is the... What is the shiny side for, for one thing? Like, how have we... It's good to know the cotton industry is still going strong <laughs> in this century. Like, I, it raised many more questions than were answered yes. for such a tiny moment. <laughs> I feel like the hand towel was one of those moments we were just talking about where Matt Frewer says, instead of answering this question, what if I just held my hands out and he gave me a towel? <laughs> and, and and then they were like running around trying to make a future towel. Yeah, exactly. Let's get a future towel. <laughs> Just like I saw a future towel. Somebody give me a future well, towel. And I think it was the same material as the napkin Riker threw at the fat Ferengi. Yeah. <laughs> In the last episode, they were, it was just hanging around. They're like, "Well, we got more material, so we can uh, we can make a towel for you." Real Perfect. Quick. <laughs> My head is the same napkin. Oh, it is. It should be. Uh, and right before that moment, he palms a piece of fruit, which I think is also uh, something that we are first to notice. There, he's just walking by, picks it up, and puts it in his pocket, which is a specific kind of behavior that a specific kind of person might exhibit. Data immediately goes to that, am I still alive 600 years from now or 300 
answers or not. And that's where the towel thing comes in. He does not answer. Uh, and then Data makes an assumption there. And Furrer is like, don't assume. Boom. That last shot in Data's or in Rasmussen's quarters, what did you all think about that? Because that last like look to the camera and the smile kind of gave away the the whole thing. Did that that bothered me a little bit? Where I'm like, I like him. I like Matt Fuhr doing this this act, but I was like, I kind of wish they'd that they'd held that to the chest a little bit more. I don't remember that moment. <laughs> to me, the music did a lot of the work in this episode, and if the music had been just a little bit more forgiving there. It could have been either something neat's about to happen that the historian gets to watch or uh, he's hiding something, but the music kind of tipped it the way the way Greg is talking. Uh, hmm. And I tried to look at it without music and I'm like, well, it could be just a real big fucking nerd being excited for what happens next when they get to Pinthara 4. Um, hmm. but, but yeah, I agree. It was given away there. But, you know, what are we going to do? We, what we're going to do go to Pinthara is 4. we're going to get to Pinthara 4. <laughs> It turns out that there are frozen tropical rivers under 12 kilometers of clouds in New Seattle. And this, New uh, Seattle! Yay! It's happening right now! We have tropical rivers Seattle, happening right everybody. now! Yay. Love can win everywhere! <laughs> <laughs> so after celebrating New Seattle, we go to 10 Forward. <laughs> and join us, says Crusher, after Worf opens up with, I hate questionnaires. Oh my god, that was the best line! Oh, it laughed out loud. Go ahead, Jimmy. It was a great line, but what was odd to me was in this giant ship where every single person has a massive ensuite quarters to live in, in 10-4, there's tiny little tables, so the two biggest people on the ship have to sit side by side <laughs> with their shoulders bumping up against each other. It it's odd. It's wonderful. <laughs> They're eating their knees too. Like it's fantastic. We give us that great look between the two of them when C Crusher calls him over and they're like, oh my God, this guy giving us his homework. <laughs> Time travelers, am I right? Well, then it's another move that I feel like, I feel like Matt Frewer got there <laughs> and was like, how small is this table? Can I do a bit about how small the table is when I sit down? And they did a bit about how he had to put his face inside Worf's nose to sit down at this table. So uh, it was really wonderful. He sits face-to-face -face with Worf. Complete these questionnaires by tomorrow. Uh, you're all very calm, he says, as they start to complain about that. And they're like, why should, should we not be? He says, no, <laughs> now don't be asking me questions about the stuff that I'm, that I'm bringing up. Like, this is a wonderful little jousting thing here. And uh, they're like, well, Riker's this is so pissed. exciting. And they're like, what is? And he goes, we'll see. <laughs> and he does it just over and over and over. It's fantastic. I love it. I love it. Yeah, me too. Me too. He, he It would probably get annoying. Uh, in the hands of some actors. And I just feel like he he goes to the same well in with different, what do you call it, uh, buckets. Tactics. <laughs> Each time. So it's still interesting to us as an audience member every time he goes to that same well. <laughs> Beverly says, you probably saw surgical masks and gloves uh, at the last place you were because they didn't have the medical uh, stuff that we have now. And he says, I uh, can't confirm or deny. He pivots right to, isn't it interesting what people ask, the things that people are curious about? He asks Riker what he thinks the biggest achievement is in recent, recent centuries. And he says, the warp coil. Warp immediately goes, phasers. <laughs> <laughs> Which is also amazing. From there, we go to engineering, uh, where he just pokes his head in while Data and uh, Jordy are doing their things. Turns out everything that's going on is tectonically sound. That's fantastic. Here are your questionnaires. The prof sits down with Jordy while Data does some anomaly research in preparation uh, for making their plan a go. He confesses to Jordy, the professor, that we don't know much of what Data did on this particular mission. Oops. Jordy is like, oh, it's this mission. This is why you're here. You want to see this mission. And he says, oh, you know, hey. I can't say anything really. He's right back into it. I'm just hanging out. And then he turns to Data and goes, Data at Pentara 4. <laughs> it's just wonderful. Darmok in the card. <laughs> at Tanagra. And then he says, hey, 
Uh, I wanted to ask you, um, what's with your prosthesis there? What's 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 that thing all about? He goes, oh, my visor? He goes, yeah, that's right, a visor. You know, uh, <laughs> Stevie Wonder was blind. <laughs> Which is... That was great to drop in Stevie Wonder. Maybe the funniest line in Star Trek The Next Generation <laughs> up till now. And exactly the way people talk to blind people, by the way. True. And then Jordy's like, fly on the wall, huh? Get the fuck out of <laughs> <Yes>. here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> As Jordy leaves for the surface to make sure that we got everything going well, we see the prof take a tricorder off the table, put it in his pocket, and say, who says these moments are any less exciting when you know the outcome? And that could have been the end of the scene, but no. We get a data doesn't understand sarcasm, and it's the <laughs> best. Data says, I don't believe anyone said that. He just kind of smiles and goes, great. Meanwhile, he's going to try and uh, email that uh, the idea for the iPad to Steve Jobs. <laughs> Correct. We have a matte painting sighting on Panthara 4. The whole thing shouldn't take more than 20 Vorsites, uh, says uh, Jordy. What's a Vorsight, Jimmy? I don't know. Cool. <laughs> Less than twenty of them, and it'll be over. <laughs> Riker takes it's a, it's charge. It's an hour, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> We're gonna. We we did the plan that did this whole thing in less than twenty parsecs. We take <laughs> Riker on the bridge. We drill holes with laser. The music lets us know it's not all wine and roses, though. Could be perfect, but the music says it's not perfect yet. There's no change. The surface winds are steady, though. There's an elevated CO2 at 20 kilometers suddenly. And now everybody's freaking because the music says it's all going according to plan. You've given us what we need. Time. And then the professor goes, you've given us what we need. Time. And it's such a fantastic fucking moment. And everyone's like, fuck this guy. Get him out of (laughs) here. At about this point, I was I started racing back to the beginning of the episode. Like, was there any point that they told us as the audience that this guy actually knows what's going on? Or was it just profound coincidence that he happens to show up when something really big is actually happening? Which he didn't know always happens on the Enterprise. So good for him that he ran into, you know, the Enterprise instead of the Excelsior. But how how did he he he, he didn't know what was going to happen, and yet he shows up on a profoundly important day where something extraordinary happens. And it, it, to me, it's where this thread started to unravel, and I became less and less satisfied, not because of the, the actors. The actors were brilliant. Matt is fantastic. But it was like, you fucking wasted so much opportunities here <laughs> because now you're just – this is a MacGuffin. You did not support this. And all the other actors have to pretend like there isn't evidence that you're fake. I... Uh, I'll counter that what I sort of got from this intro is that you could do this to almost anyone. Because he gives himself the padding of time. He doesn't say this event is happening today, I've come. He says something very innocuous and, and like open-ended about like this event will be happened. Like I wanted to come like, I, I don't, I don't get the sense that it's like, well, it's going to happen in the next 24 hours. But I love the fact that he does a lot of the like, so this is it because it could be any event, right? It could be any fucking thing. It doesn't have to be this massively big thing. If he's coming back from, right. It could be the most innocuous thing that he could make. Like, this is the moment that an idea is born that will, that will, cure you know the ills of the 24th century yeah yeah that's where i was going with it too like if you're equating these people to you know the carthaginians or to caesar or you know every few hundred years there's someone he's comparing these people to then you have historians that want to go back and see what they had for breakfast on this particular day because on this particular day there's no note for it so we want to discover that note. So he's like, this mission people think is key, but they're not sure. So I'm here to see what happened on this mission, you know? And, yes. and, and so that's where I was too. I, I, I think he does a very skillful job of repeating what sounds like a great line there at, at what he thinks is the end. Like he doesn't talk from here on, like there's more to happen so that when more does happen, 
he's just as surprised and gets to act like he's not, which is great. Go ahead, Jimmy. Well, I would counter your counter in that one, he does yes. mention he's on a clock. Uh, very specifically, he has to leave by 900 hours on a certain day. So there is a clock in a window in which something's going to happen that he's come back to observe. And I don't disagree with the assessment that you guys just put forth, but I disagree that the storyline supported it. It would have been more interesting if nothing happened. And he kept doing the same thing. And they were like, what's going to happen? And there's a tension of... He's here to watch something. We're expecting something to happen, but everything seems fine and normal. And then their behavior escalates it. Their behavior makes something happen, but it's not. There's something profound happening. And he keeps interjecting, oh, yes, this is a moment. This is something that I'm calling back to. This is the thing when you did that. And he keeps looking at his thing, letting us know he's on the clock. So there is a window, and he does let us know it's going to happen within a certain amount of time. Yes, I do think he is lucky that it did happen in that he certain does, amount of time. He, he says exactly, I will be leaving by 900 hours tomorrow. Right, but I think he... Tells it to data. ...is improvising everything else. Yeah, I think he... He doesn't even say he's here to witness an event. They say that. They, they're the ones, and he just kind of fills in the blanks. I think he's just there to observe what's happening here. And as Eric and Kate are saying, I think it's just lucky that there is some type of, of event happening. But... In the grand scheme of Star Trek, this one isn't actually that big of an event. It's like one Federation colony right. might be wiped out, right? You know, which is, you know, significant for this and... <laughs> 20 million people. <laughs> you know, it's not insignificant, but I think he's just being the great con man and improvising with what is he's being dealt. Jimmy, I think I can give you a half win here because I agree with you that your idea is better. I just didn't know that was the conversation <laughs> we were having. So now that I know that that's the conversation we were having, I agree, Jimmy. I, I think that it would be better if there, like, literally nothing happened in this whole episode except him wandering from room to room pretending something's about to happen. Like, that's the episode I want this to be. Um, but it isn't. And we get the episode we got. Thank you for yeah. pointing it out, young James. And we're going to move on yeah. to the next bit. And that rhymes with T, and that starts with trouble. <laughs> It starts with Troy. <laughs> she says he's hiding something. Professor comes to ask Crusher about uh, her questionnaire. And he wants to see a neural stimulator, please. Yeah, he does. And then says, buck up, crewman. You're a credit to the uniform. Says <laughs> <laughs> the time traveler. Magic and wand he, he wants. pivots immediately to go, hey, Troy, you don't like me. First, she says, I don't dislike you. Uh, <laughs> And then he immediately pivots right. again to keep your eyes wide, soldier. You'll be telling your grandchildren how you were there at Pentara 4. This shit is amazing. <laughs> he immediately goes and says that the other historians all told him that Picard's empath won't trust you, they said. <laughs> he works her very hard here. And it goes back and forth in a wonderful way. He gets these back and forth scenes with several members of this cast, and it's delightful. He gets one-on-ones mm -hmm. uh, of a few types with Picard. He gets them with Crusher, with Troy, with Data, with Jordy. Like, everybody gets there for a moment, and it's really, really fun. Finally, she turns to him and says, you're right, I don't trust you. And then he comes back with, I knew you'd say that. <laughs> Which is really fantastic. I just say, this is the one episode where Troy is spot on and nobody listens yep. to her. Nobody cares. Nobody's like, oh, you're just being a jerk. This guy's clearly on the up and up. Look at how charming he is. And she's like, mm, not so much. Yes. Speaking of that, it's time to go flirt with uh, Beverly Crusher. Mm. She rebuffs mm. him like very well. Yes. He gives her the hard sell. She gives him a little bit of flirt. And at the uh, end says, I'm beginning to feel just a little bit influenced and I could be your great, 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 great grandmother. <laughs> that's that's it. it. It does feel like she has suddenly sensed the bursting of the charm bubble there, though. It, it, he has pushed a little too hard and no longer has Crusher on his side. Yeah, he gets too in her face. It's too gross. It's too it's too much in that moment and 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 it's palpable that she's uncomfortable. Yeah, there's too yeah. much ick right there. I'm not for it. Her saccharine response is great though. I love that she's just like, Yeah, goodbye. See you later. Yeah. Don't let the door hit you on the way out, motherfucker. The bridge crew is discussing the different questions they got on the research. Riker got questions about previous starships. 
and data about Sung's research, but before they can get too far into it, we have earthquakes, we have eruptions <gasps> all over. Looks like volcanic dust will compound the cloud cover and CO2 won't help then. Turns out the drilling may have exacerbated the problem. Who could have told? Not a big deal. Commercial. Not a big deal. <laughs> As we're walking down the hall after the commercial, the prof's letting us in a little bit more. Uh, he looks at the crewman's ass that he passes, which uh, shows us even more that he's not a serious person, which is fine. Uh, and Data is listening to half a dozen songs at once. It's really gorgeous. He tries to keep it down to 10 or less. My kids try to do that. And I'm like, what are you doing? There's too much music. No, no, it's impossible. But really, could you get me your, your own schematics by 0900 tomorrow when I leave? <laughs> he says here, he's like, sure, as soon as I'm done with Jordy. Well, and this is where I also questioned, the, I questioned the questionnaires and their responses to it. Because you're like, wait a second, if they're giving all this information, yes, he, as credentialed as he could be, he could be a Romulan spy. He could be like any type of enemy who's trying to get information out of them. And they just seem to be like, sure, no problem. You're a historian. Of course, I'll give you all the inner workings of my positronic brain. That's a secret for everything. And you're like, and then I'm thinking about all the questions that you know Riker was answering and, and, and all the folks like they're basically talking about weapon systems and technology. And you're like, not in anyone's brain. Did you think like this could be used against us in any way? Troy is the only one. Yep. And no one listens to her. It's true. And we get to the conference room and uh, apparently we're going to create a shock front to fix all this stuff down on the planet. Should work. Sounds good. We just absorb the high-yield energy plasma and throw that into space. But uh, we might blow off the planet's atmosphere if we cross the streams the wrong way. No biggie. No big deal. Yeah, let's just go ahead and do it. Don't reverse the polarity. <laughs> We're back to the ready room, and here's the long talk with the prof. We have tens of thousands that may die, and the prof says, oh, wouldn't that be a shame? It's really a beautiful little moment of, of being uncomfortable and trying to hide it. The, the, the amount that he lets us in there is... It's just a little uh, wonderful kind of flourish from the actor. And Picard says, yes, it would be a shame. He says, I can't ask, but there are millions of, millions of lives and you can help. So they go back and forth and back and forth. They get to the, would you go back in time to kill Hitler? And the way they phrase it, he says, the Hitler versus Khan Singh, the temporal logic class. And we, we are self-referential in this lovely Star Trek universe that we have. We have a Khan sighting. Even at this point as a kid, I remember the Khan came up and I'm like, I get that one. I know it. I know that one. I know that reference. Ricardo Mataban. <laughs> it's really kind of deft writing throughout all of this. Like the, the actors get a real chance to, to play off each other. It's nice. And finally, they get to the idea that my history would unfold in a different way than it already has if I helped you. And why would I help you do that? Here, one day, millions of lives will be saved. Everyone dies, Captain. It's just a question of when. I can't get worked over a bunch of colonists who've been dead a very long time. Boom. Uh, Picard comes right back with something there. He's disregarded the prime directive himself because it was the right thing to do. You should disregard yours here if you are being held by the same thing. It's the right thing to do. Every choice manipulates the future. Whether I take a holiday on Corsica or Risa, I get that one too. Uh -huh. Life is choices. I don't give a damn about your past because that's my future and it hasn't been written yet. Any chance to have this monologue said opposite you like he gets to just waltz onto this show and have one of the classic picard monologues delivered to him what a joy and yeah patrick stewart does such a great way of uh arguing here because and I, even the script is very good because i see both uh you know rasmussen's argument here and picard's argument and i'd actually I'm, i know i'm I, this is a gray area for me i don't actually know what the right call is in this situation if he was being truthful yeah. right if Rasmussen is actually yeah. from the future right because there's so much about you know in our culture now of what the sacred timeline is and blah 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 and you're like all right well but Picard's point is like well that's I don't know I have no knowledge of what those other timelines are and it doesn't matter because right. I'm dealt with what is right here a choice I can make that can save people or a choice that will kill people I'm not going to kill people on the hypothetical that maybe something in the future will change or be different and no one can no one can have that kind of thing but at the same time I understand Matt Frewer being like I can't I can't do this either uh because of all of my principles that I have and uh 
it's 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 a great still relevant conversation now given um you know the multiversal kind of conversations that are happening uh in uh the marvel universe and other things like it actually kind of felt very fresh despite it being from 1991 and it doesn't quite work because once he says i won't help you picard says you have already helped by not helping me and he goes out and does what he was already going to do and it works and everything's fine we got one shot at this we use surge control on those phasers Jimmy, we have surge control. We use surge control on our own computers, so they have <laughs> the phasers, and it's just like what we do. And they have drill phasers. Yeah. On Ooh. the Enterprise, phasers specifically set for drilling. We're happening there. Texas so, T. We exciting. leave we leave Jordy LaForge on the planet so we can have a rooting interest. Ah, uh, LaForge stays on the planet. Stand by for auto phaser interlock, Jimmy. And suddenly, data activated the shield inverters, and here we go. Everyone's still breathing. Everyone's fine. I like how they had to physically turn the Enterprise around mid-plasma so they could fire it the <laughs> other way. Hilarious. Just apparently that's the way it works. And uh, nobody needed a empath to see that uh, Matt Fewer, Rasmussen, is visibly nervous about what's happening <laughs> yes. during this process. A thousand percent. And as soon as it's over, he smacks his thighs and says, well, I'd love to see more. And he checks his finger clock. <laughs> he gets up to leave. Riker comes over to talk for a second and to distract him. He goes, you know, you're a taller in person, Commander. And then he runs away. <laughs> it's just fantastic. We get to the shuttle bay. And uh, who would have expected the teary farewell? We have the entire crew there. Picard says, we need your relics back. We've got to look in your ship. He says, what? And Worf goes, I will explode it or I will look inside it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and he says, all right, you can come in, but only Data. And they explain that he believes that Data will follow orders no matter what. They don't say you know, why he believes this, but that is a thing that everybody believes about Data. So, okay, they board. There is a stash of stuff and a phaser. He's got a phaser. It turns out the professor is from where, Kate? The 22nd century. He's from the past the whole time. The past. Oh, man. He stole a vessel from a traveler and he wants to steal data now. In about two minutes, we should be heading to a place called New Jersey. <laughs> New Jersey, of course he's in New Jersey. The whole thing was a setup for this joke. The entire episode was a setup for this lame ass perfect joke. And then Data responds basically with, I assume your handprint will open this door whether you are conscious or not. <laughs> what a badass line from an fantastic android. Fantastic threat. Damn. Yes. They come out. He asks for uh, mercy from the captain who says, what possible incentive would there be for me to do that? Getting very petty. He takes the time to tell Dr. Crusher that the flirting was real, at least, <laughs> which, I, which I appreciate. <laughs> He does. He's like, I did want to bone you. That was real. <laughs> There's lots of jitteriness. Picard explains that all the machines inside the ship were turned off by the computer once the door was opened. And then the ship disappears. The time traveler is stuck here. Picard says, you'll be talking to our historians now. <laughs> Professor, welcome to the 24th century. Yeah. And that's the end. So good. I tell you, let's go around the horn for some uh, reactions to this final scene and uh, give me some uh, something out of tens. What do you think, Greg Tito? I am going to give this one eight questionnaires that I hate. <laughs> it is uh, a really fun episode. I enjoy the performance of uh, Matt Frewer coming in here. As I said in the opening, it's just it's, it's a weird, different energy that we don't see on Star Trek. It's a hokey and it fits his persona as a con man here. We all don't trust him. Uh, it actually is, even though I said I didn't like that they gave it away early uh, with that one thing, I, I in thinking it through, I don't know if it would have worked without the audience kind of being in on the joke. And it was kind of fun for, you know, like a like a um, like a Columbo episode or a, a poker face thing where you look, you know exactly what it is. The fun is seeing how the characters figure it out. There are some uh, really great scenes with each of the characters, as you mentioned, Eric. And I like that we get like a little bit of a history of, of the Star Trek universe 
you know, indirectly by the way they talk about when things are discovered and things are, are made. It's a little bit off from, you know, this final scene in the shuttle craft. I kind of wish he didn't do the whole, like, let me give away everything right here on his own. Uh, I wish there was something more that Data did more actively to get him to, to talk it out. But like almost as soon as they're in their thing, He's like, I can't wait to tell the truth, which doesn't seem like his character at all. Uh, you know, it feels like a con man would try to keep the con going for as long as he could, especially if he's trying to subdue data in some kind of way. I think he, underest he underestimates, uh, you know, everybody here uh, at this point because he thinks he's suckered them all, which I guess actually maybe, maybe makes sense as a con man. He thinks he's he's much more skilled than he actually is. Yeah, it's, it's a fun episode. I don't think it necessarily matters in the grand scheme of Trek uh, beyond all the historical references, but I do love that they reference New Jersey and Seattle and it is <laughs> a, uh, a really fun guest turn by Matt Brewer. Love it. All right, Jimmy, what do you think? It's a big math for me. This there's a big troubling spot in this final scene too, where he goes into the shuttle and uh, we find out that the enterprise is able to disarm the phaser, which is something that many times before and many times after this episode would have been very useful <laughs> to the enterprise. <laughs> really good uh, point. It's never visited again, but I'm going to give this five poor Rick Berman quotes. As we know, Rick Berman is one of the Fair. producers. He's only story uh, did two uh, storytelling episodes, and this was his very first solo writer credit. And I just want to read you a quote that uh, he said about this episode. It's like imagining what Newton could have done if he had a conductor. He goes on to say, what would someone of the 19th, 20th, or 21st century do with data? He'd be a very powerful individual. This quote ruined this episode for me because he had this grand idea of what could have happened, and he did fuck all to actually pursue that. He doesn't pursue data. There's a couple of interests in him, but he's no more interested in data than he is in the little trinket he gets from Crusher. It's not until coincidence at the end where he gets trapped by the crew that he even invites data in. Otherwise, he would have just merrily went on his way without any real attempt of trying to take data. There's no reflection on this guy being somebody of import, like he's going to do something other than swindle people with the technology instead of doing something fantastic, like he's, he has a need for it to help. Like it's just in every single way, this ruined a great plot idea <laughs> and it wasted one of the great character actors because Brewer does more than just yuck it up. If you ever saw his turn on Fear of the Walking mm -hmm. Dead, he plays a really good and threatening bad guy fearsome and kind of scary and he can do those things and you know mm -hmm. not only does it not inform the canon it just doesn't live up to what it could have been for me so it's middle of the road i think that we got an eight we got a five where are we going with this cake i'm giving it eight harold hills because i like a good <laughs> flim flammery story i just think it's a uh i hear what you're you saying know the territory <laughs> i hear what you're saying jimmy 100 percent and I don't care because of his performance, right? Like I, I, I see all the plot holes and I'm willing to overlook them because it is such a wonderful playground for such a wonderful actor. Uh, and we've talked about the fact that he gets such juicy scenes with each key member of the, of the crew. It's, it's fantastic and rare that you get to see someone go nose to nose with so many of our uh, key cast members uh, in just that sort of, that's like what we hold off for Ensign Row, right? Because she's gonna be a character that we know for mm -hmm. for years to come, but he gets these great scenes. Um, and so I'm gonna give it eight Harold Hills and I'm sticking to it because I know the territory. Love it. I think that's fantastic. I'm gonna give it nine missing scenes with Guinan. Because the only thing that I feel like I wanted that I didn't get out of this as a way to introduce the character and the performance that is Matt Furrer is a scene with Guinan and how he would talk his way around that. Because I, I think we, we can find an interesting and fun way to do it. Yeah, I, I, I also see everything you're saying, Jimmy, but I really loved the TV series Doctor Doctor and... Uh, just the act of seeing Matt Furrer do his Matt Furrerness, uh, and I agree, he can do anything. This guy can do anything. Fear the Walking Dead is one I didn't bring up, but my gosh, he's good. He's in 04's Dawn of the Dead, right? 
I, I think that uh, this episode isn't everything you want it to be from a plot standpoint or anything else, just the performances. And I absolutely love it. Uh, certainly enough uh, for me in the human land that is Thailand uh, on the beach that I have been spending my time. My pants have been wet for 10 days. <laughs> so um, I'm going to call this episode good. My computer is on 1%. Perfect. Thank you so much for riding along with us on this episode of Re-Engage. Next week, we continue our mission with the next episode of the fifth season of Star Trek The Next Generation. Follow Re-Engage on Blue Sky and the site formerly known as Twitter at ReEngageTNG to get updates when episodes are published. You can follow our various cultural bridge officers. Kate Yeager is at Yeagerlicious. Eric Curry is at Eric Falls Down. Greg Tito is visible at gregtito.com and at Greg Tito on Twitter and Blue Sky. Jimmy G is at the Jimmy G on Insta. Reengage is edited by Greg Tito, Kate Yeager, or Jimmy G. Logo artwork is by MojoJojo underscore 97 on Twitter or Mojo97.com. Theme music is by Ryan Marth. Thanks for listening. Join us next week as we re-engage. <laughs>